Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. On today's show, we talk to Chris Zimmer, the Alaska Campaign Director for Rivers Without Borders. Chris is doing important work on the transboundary mining issue between BC and Southeast Alaska borders. Basically, what's going on is there are mines that are being built up in watersheds that start in British Columbia, Canada, and descend their way through into Alaska. All of these river systems are salmon-bearing rivers and streams. And so ultimately, what goes up must come down. And Chris is one of those folks that has dedicated his life work to trying to preserve these salmon rivers and dealing with a really tricky gauntlet of lots of different people and organizations, including two different countries. So this is an amazing conversation about a very difficult subject and a very passionate human being who's doing great work on it. If you like what you're hearing on this show, we would love for you to think about giving it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Write a review in your own words if you can. Uh, It really helps us get this show out into the world and increase our amplification. And lastly, if you're looking for a way to fill your barbecue all summer long with the world's best regenerative protein, we put together a Salmon Summer Experience Kit over at avaswild.com. Inside, you'll get two flash-frozen fillets of wild Bristol Bay sockeye salmon delivered to your door every month for three months during the summer as a subscription. You'll also get downloadable copies of The Breach and The Wild, my two documentaries about wild salmon, You'll get a jar of Tom Douglas salmon rub to put on your salmon, and you'll get a pair of recyclable VR goggles to do a short trip up into Bristol Bay if you can't go there yourself. Head on over to avaswild.com, that's save spelled backwards, wild.com, and get yourself set up for the summer. All right, so that's it. I hope you enjoy the show, and we'll see you next week. Chris Zimmer, welcome. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm glad we got everything up and rolling. Yeah, it's good to see you, man. Um, So I understand you're coming to us from Juneau today. Has spring finally sprung? Yeah, it looks like the snow's all gone. The rain's starting to hit in. Uh, My truck is covered with pollen, and uh, the fish are starting to show up. (laughs) So that's always good. Well, Chris Zimmer with the um, Rivers Without Borders, Alaska Campaign Director, uh, welcome today. So glad you're here. And so, yeah, as you're saying, I know it's steelhead season and rapidly approaching king season. um, So thank you for making the time to connect. Uh, What are you going to go and do first? Are you going to swing a fly or what's your proclivity for fishing? Oh, all flies, uh, especially for steelhead that uh, that noble of a fish demands. you know, hand-tied flies and swung flies. And <laughs> uh, we come off a little elitist there, but so be it. <laughs> so be it, man. You know, I think I, I, I talked to lots of fishermen, surprise, surprise. And uh, 
I just think you get to a point where, you know, it's the challenge. Like when we're kids, you go out and you've got your, uh, your eggs and bobber hookup and you're, you know, out to you get a, a stringer of fish as quickly as you can. And you get a little more discerning when you get to a certain age. I guess that means we're getting to a certain age, but so be it. It's yep. beautiful. I agree. It's all part of the art. Um, let's, let's dive into this, man. Um, so you, what is river rivers without borders and what is it about this org that's kept you working diligently with them since 2001, man, you, you must love this work that you're doing. What's it all about? Well, I also want to win one in, in this work. We don't win very many. So I'm going to stick this out till we get a, a victory here. But, uh, I think when you look at rivers without borders, it almost kind of tells the transboundary story. Um, I used to work on Columbia dam issues down there in Seattle and uh, I'd always been wanting to get up to Alaska here, saw the job and applied and got it. But um, once I jumped into it, I found out it was it was vastly different stuff. Um, what uh, what Rivers Without Borders, our goal was to try to bring people from both sides of the British Columbia, Alaska border together to deal with issues uh, that were common. Because kind of before 2001, there were these mining and salmon issues in the region but even the activists treated the border like a border. There wasn't much cross-border interaction. There wasn't a lot of exchange, uh, sharing of uh, information. Um, the tribes didn't talk very much across the border, despite the fact that they have relatives on both sides of the border. You know, that border, uh, you know, the tribal nations uh, and their history, the salmon, water, water pollution, doesn't really respect the border. <laughs> um, so this border is kind of an artificial line on a map. It's not as much a real thing in reality on the ground. Um, but when we came to, mm. we were, um, we, we, uh, came together over something called the Tulsa chief mine, which was a mine proposed in the Taku river watershed, which is a big watershed. Um, the mouth of the river is probably only about, let's see, 20, 30 miles from my house here. You can almost walk to it. Um, it's usually the most productive salmon river in the region, um, although it's having severe problems right now with the Chinook. Um, and that mine, we thought, one, was bad itself because it's, it's an acid mine producing mine, and it was literally only feet away from the river. But it was also the can opener into the watershed. Um, they were going to put a road in there, a mine. And once you get a road into an area like that, everything else comes in, whether it's moose poachers, other miners, other development. The First Nation would lose control of the access and the land. So this mine was the wrong place or the wrong mine in the wrong place for a thousand reasons. And what started is that battle against the Tulsa chief. You kind of look at it as the canary in the coal mine or the precedent. Now we're seeing that dynamic play out everywhere from Haines uh, to the north of us to Ketchikan to the south with upstream mines essentially threatening downstream interests and livelihoods and jobs. So we started working on the Tulsa Chief with this cross-border dynamic, and now all across the border this is happening, even all the way to Montana, where BC coal mines have really polluted uh, uh, the Elk River. Um, you get fish deformities. I mean, there's the real lesson. That's what we don't want to see in Alaska, where the water is toxic. The fish are um, uh, uh, suffering from that. Most of the habitat in the water along the southeast Alaska border is in good shape. As long as we protect that habitat, the fish will keep coming back. But if we start uh, degrading the water quality, if we start impacting salmon spawning beds upriver, we're going to see declines. 
But the good thing is, this isn't a restoration battle of fixing something that's broken. This is trying to protect something, some of the most productive salmon waters on the planet. Whereas over with, uh, in the Montana situation, you're trying to clean up a big mess. Got it. Okay. So we're going to break this down even further, but um, I want to go ahead and go back to the future. I'd love to hear uh, a little bit more about your your story, your upbringing. What, what got you fired up about this kind of work? I know you've been doing it most of your adult life. Like, what is the thing that drives you to uh, get up in the morning and, and, and save those things that you love? And how did it all begin? I think it's kind of water and fish. I was, I was out with a buddy of mine fishing and we were taking a friend of his to the beach and the guy looked at us and said, Hey, I'm kind of scared. I can't swim. And we dropped him off. Hmm. And after that, my friend looked at me and he said, can you imagine being scared of the water? Can you imagine, uh, not being able to swim and not being able to, you know, basically go play around in, you know, three quarters of the world's habitat. Um, so this started when I was little of, I mean, this will sound kind of weird. I used to build dams in our little Creek and, uh, make little habitat for the frogs and the tadpoles. Um, uh, my parents forced us uh, to go to swimming practice every summer at, you know, five in the morning. Uh, they took us to the beach. I mean, the one of the best things my parents did was probably make us comfortable in the water. Um, we're not scared of it. Uh, you know, we don't have to sit on the beach. And it opened up just this whole, you know, for lack of a better word, habitat to go play in. Um so I was always outside in the water, uh, playing with the frogs and the fish. And once we figured out fishing, my dad, who couldn't stand fishing, took us till we were big enough to go by ourselves. And then he just let us go. So I think it's it's really that that water. It's just such an amazing environment. It's so dynamic. It changes. Um, you know, a, a river is, you could step in a river and fish for an hour, come back in two hours. It's a different river. Um, uh, and once I discovered salmon and steelhead, um, that was it. I was done. <laughs> Came over. I, I yeah. can absolutely <laughs> empathize with you. Uh, same story for me. And, and also it was, you know, the mystery of it all, you know, like as a guide for years in Southeast, the thing that kept me going every single day was like, you just never know what's going to happen. You never know what's underneath the water. What, what kind of, uh, realm you're going to discover. And, uh, yeah, that's a that's a powerful motivator. Well, thanks for that. Um, and so let's go into Tulsaqua. And um, I sense there's a little irony between the Tlingit First Nations meaning of the word and the industrial mind you've been fighting against. Can you enlighten us a bit about this big issue? You know, what is it? What's its history? And um, what maybe a little bit on the entomology from from the, um, the name itself and, and what it is now? Um, well, the, the Taku, I've, I've actually heard a variety of different uh, definitions of the word Taku. And at this point, I'm kind of hesitant to offer one up because I'm not clear which one's which. Is that what you were getting at, <laughs> the entomology of the word there? Um, I was thinking about the, the name of the doggone mine itself. Uh, the Oh. Tulsqua chief, yeah, the Tulsqua um, as as a Tlingit word itself. Oh yeah, Tulsqua is the name of it's on the Tulsqua River, which is the biggest um, tributary to the Taku. Um, and this mine had operated in the 1950s uh, for about six or seven years, and it then closed down due to low metals prices, um, and the company just walked away. They didn't do any cleanup. I mean, they left 
you know, papers on the desk. They left <laughs> the, all the machinery around. I mean, literally, they got in a boat and left. And the biggest problem was the mine was pouring acid mine drainage out of the mine openings. And acid mine drainage is what happens when you you dig into these mines. You uh, um, It's caused by uh, uh, the sulfur-bearing ore body. You expose that to air. You bring in water. And the reaction creates an acidic reaction, so you get acid mine drainage. Uh, that level of acidic water is very bad for fish, but it also carries with it a lot of heavy metals. It's leached out of the rock. Uh, copper, arsenic, zinc, lead. Copper is especially brutal on eggs and juveniles. Uh, uh, only a few parts per million uh, uh, can be toxic to the fish when in that sensitive stage. It might not kill an adult, but it could uh, 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 kill or um, uh, impact the young fish to where they just can't do what they need to do. They can't find their way. They can't find mates. They can't find food. So the acid nature of the water and then the heavy metals are, are, are essentially poisonous to fish and anything else that lives in the water. So um, that mine until, I mean, it's, and it's still doing that. That acid mine drainage is still spewing out of that mine 60 years after it was closed. Um, in the 1990s, a company called Redfern came in, bought it, tried to redevelop it. They went bankrupt and they made no effort to really clean it up. Uh, another company then bought it, uh, Chieftain Metals. They went bankrupt um, and then went through a bankruptcy process and a receivership process. They really didn't make much effort to clean it up. They built a water treatment plant, ran it for three months, closed it down. Um, and right now, the month <laughs> essentially is pouring this garbage out of it like it was in the 50s. And so this is this is the canary in the coal mine for how we see BC mining activities and how they um, can impact the water. It also, on a bit of a more positive note, could be a precedent for cleanup. If this mine is cleaned up in a way that solves the drainage, um, uh, reduces the amount of metals and acid in the water, and essentially uh, makes the Tulsa River healthier for fish, great. But if we go through some half-assed cleanup where we're more worried about money or politics, um, uh, then we're not going to see something that works. And then I think we're going to have to worry about what happens at the next mine. You know, Tosco Chief is a relatively small mine. There are mines proposed that are several orders of magnitude bigger. And if they're going to be managed the same way the Tosco Chief is, we have a problem. So the Tosco Chief was the warning for us. It showed us, wow, here's what BC's doing. Here's what British Columbia um, wants to do. Here's how they regulate their mines. Here's how they don't regulate their mines. Um, and here's what voice Alaska has. You know, these mines are in another country. So, um, uh, you know, it's a bit difficult sometimes for us to get some attention here working across the border. It's not, you know, land we control. So this is a very complex issue with you got local jurisdictions, state and provincial, federal, tribal and first nation. Um, you have an international border. Um, the, the Tulsa chief really showed the complexity of this transboundary issue. And we thought, one, you got to stop that mine and clean it up because it's bad for this river. And two, we got to stop it and clean it up because if we can't do it right here, we're not going to do it right anywhere else. Um, and we've turned a corner here over the last couple years where the British Columbia government finally realized this isn't a viable mine. The Tucker River Klingit the Canadian First Nation whose territory this mine is in are opposed to it. They definitely don't want to see a road into their territory. 
the Alaskan government, the Alaska fishermen. We want to see it uh, uh, cleaned up. Um, this just isn't a viable mine. It also isn't very economic. It's a small deposit. It's very expensive to access, be expensive to clean up. So the British Columbia government finally, I think, realized they need to take charge of this. Uh, they issued a cleanup plan. They spent a few million bucks on studies. They've started to characterize the site so they know physically uh, uh, what's happening there. Um, they've run into delays from COVID. They've also run into some delays from a bankruptcy process that's still ongoing. Um, and that was another big lesson there. But we think they are on the path to do the right thing here. But it is going to take a lot of vigilance. Um, I remember when Reagan was dealing with the Soviets, he used an old, old Soviet saying, uh, trust but verify. Um, you know, we need to stay on top hmm. of the Canadians here. And the bankruptcy exposed a real problem that if a company goes bankrupt, or, or, or expose the problem with, I'd say, the bonding and the bankruptcy. In, the, in Alaska, when a mine is proposed, it puts a full cash bond in the bank to where if they go bankrupt or if there's a problem, that money solves the problem. In British Columbia, the bonds are often very small. They aren't uh, complete. They're staggered to where they're built up over sometimes decades. And if a company early on in its career, like with the two companies here, goes bankrupt, and their bond is a million dollars, and the price of cleanup is $50 million, the cleanup's either not going to happen or you're going to stick the taxpayers. So this bonding and bankruptcy issue is one of the regulatory things that needs a change in BC, because when these companies go bankrupt, they just walk away and they're allowed to. And that's simply for you know, how many dozen reasons, unacceptable. Um, so again, there, here's again another kind of canary in the coal mine warning from the Tulsa chief about the entire mining system and about problems we may see from Haines to the north to, you know, Montana way down to the southeast. <laughs> wow. Uh, this is a, a, a knot for sure uh, to try to untie. So let's we'll try our best here to, to elucidate this for our listeners. So coming clear out to, you know, 30,000 feet here, there's these mines that are situated next to salmon bearing river systems and they are in British Columbia, but they're right on the border of Alaska. So the United States, why, why are these sites selected there? I mean, other clearly duh, there's, there's minerals, but like, you know, why is it just a coincidence that they're right on these salmon bearing rivers or what, what is the story there? The, there is this tremendous mineral belt. It's often called the Golden Triangle. Um, it's kind of centered around, say, the Stikeen River, which is to the south of us here. But there's this big belt that really goes up and down the, the border here of a number of minerals. Um, gold, silver, copper uh, are some of the big ones here. Um, and uh, you have probably three or four major salmon rivers. You have the, uh, 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 if you start from the south, you have the Eunuch, then you have the Stikeen, then we have the Taku, and then we have the Chilkat up by Haines. Um, these rivers are the lifeblood of the area. They have been for thousands of years. Um, in some places, the rivers can provide access corridors um, uh, via barges, and we've seen that on the Stikeen and the Taku. Um, some of it just may be the way God or the creator created the planet, that for some reason we've got this combination of salmon and minerals in one area. Um, you also have 
the whole area has been staked. If you look at a staking map, almost the entire area in these watersheds is staked. And that doesn't mean you're getting a mine in there, but that means that exploration is going on. So really it's because you have this huge belt here, um, uh, uh, and it's just the way, I guess, the planet <laughs> you know, it was created and then evolved. Um, and the history here is mines and salmon are really are a tough combination to make work. Um, I've talked to a number of engineers and say we can have an economical safe mine, um, or we can, ha or we can have a, a, an environmentally safe mine, or we can have an economical mine. You can't do both. Uh, that's a rock and a hard place problem in there. Um, um, but really, it's the combination of metals here. It's the history of staking. The BC government has heavily promoted mining in the um, these big transboundary watersheds. Um, and again, the history is mines and salmon are a bad combination, and everything goes downstream. Uh, everything that goes in the water ends up going downstream. Um, the the fish use the entire rivers. Um, for instance, in the Taku, most of the spawning area is up on the BC side, but the juvenile salmon, the bulk of them come over and, and rear and grow up on the Alaska side. So the entire river is, is valuable to fish here, and they use it all. Um, and once we see these mines come in, then we see hydropower, then we see uh, uh, power lines, we see more roads, we see more access. We're really worried about the foot in the door into some of these remote, highly productive areas, and their remoteness is, is is a value here, and that's why they're so healthy. But it's also a problem of if there are uh, spills, if there are accidents, very expensive and difficult to clean up. Um, it's a very challenging terrain out here. Um, uh, but this is some of the last best salmon habitat on the planet. You could look across the uh, uh, sea here to, uh, east coast of Russia, Kamchatka, again, some of the last best salmon, but look at the lower 48, you know, uh, the Columbia river has been dammed to death. Uh, uh, the Oregon coast has been clear cut. California's had problems with their salmon seasons for decades. You know, the lower 48 is not the salmon paradise. It probably once was. And some of the last bastions for salmon are this uh, salmon coast here in Alaska and BC, and then uh, across the ocean here on the uh, uh, um, on the Russian side? But so much else we've lost: Atlantic salmon, um, uh, uh, you know, on the East Coast and over in Europe. Um, even the Chinook runs up here in Alaska are having severe trouble. Where we are closing down seasons, and we have for the last couple years. Our charter and sport and uh, commercial fishing businesses are getting hit hard. Um, people who count on that salmon for food are getting hit hard. Um, and this is probably a problem in the ocean, not related to mining. It's, it's a problem with, with the ocean, but if the fish are in this much trouble, they can't take any more hits from, uh, industrial development. Um, the salmon habitat, as I said, is still in good shape. If we see the freshwater habitat take hits, that might be too much for the salmon to stand. If the ocean's unhealthy, the freshwater habitat gets unhealthy you know, we could be looking at extinctions down the line here. So this is a real serious moment in time here, I think, for salmon and this region of what's the path forward? Is development going to respect salmon and these livelihoods? Are the people here who whose life is dependent on salmon and fish and these rivers, are they going to be able to continue that lifestyle that's um, uh, of not only recreation, um, but their livelihoods, their jobs, uh, food on the table? Um I mean, I call it, I don't know if you can see this, but this is, I mean, it's the salmon nation. 
And I think this is the um, yep. uniting factor from, you know, wherever you are on this border, it's about salmon. I mean, you, we look at issues in this border through the paradigm of salmon and what it means for salmon and the people who depend on them. Um, and BC has vast plans for exploration and development. Um, the, the new, uh, um, the, the fight against global warming is going to need more minerals. Uh, electric cars take a ton of copper for their batteries. That's going to be a real challenge because already we see the mining industry saying we can mine our way out of the climate crisis. And that's just, that's just trying to capitalize on an issue here and being a bit crass, but we are going to need more minerals. Yeah. We need a hell of a lot more recycling because there's tons of minerals sitting in piles. There's millions of cell phones literally stacked up, uh, overseas. Um, uh, so when you look at the attack against, um, climate issues, that's going to come right down to the ground here where we're going to see more mines, um, proposed more companies trying to, uh, use this justification and we need to fight back on that. You can't trade one problem, global warming for another problem, um, uh, destruction of salmon habitat. Right. And, you know, in the case of, uh, the proposed pebble mine in Bristol Bay, which we'll we'll get to a little bit more detail later. Uh, the late Senator Ted Stevens said, "Wrong mine, wrong place." Absolutely. And you know, in other words, yeah, like there certainly we need copper, and certainly there's there's copper all over the world. There's copper in hard to reach places. There's tons, as you said, of copper to recycle that hasn't really been dipped into yet fully uh, because it's not as it's not going to make the people that want to mine in as much money, uh, clearly. So, all right. So we're breaking this down. Can you then kind of give me a, um, list of the characters involved here? Who, who stands to gain from these large scale mines and who are the other characters up and down this watershed that, that ha- are our stakeholders in this, this conflict? Wow. Okay. Um, one thing is in British Columbia um, and Vancouver, I believe, has the largest concentration of junior mining companies on the planet. And by junior mining company, we're not talking about like a Barrick Gold or a Tech Cominco. I mean, these are very small companies with uh, small staff. They might have a few properties. They might be buying old mines, trying to develop them. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, the two companies that tried to develop the, the, uh, mine in the Taku were these junior mining companies that went bankrupt because they just didn't have the resources to, to do, do the job right. So you have this massive mining industry in BC and BC gives them tax breaks, um, you know, certainly promotions, uh, subsidies. They were able, I think, to, uh, defer electricity bills for a while. And when I call my electric company and ask them that they, uh, they say no. And, uh, um, you know, start cranking up the penalties. So you, you have a very large mining industry. Really? We must have the same electric company. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. some reason, the mining companies get a better deal <laughs> there. Um, but you have everybody from these massive multi-billion dollar multinational mining companies that are involved down to the juniors. And as I said, there's a, there's a huge belt of minerals in there and that industry is going to continue to, uh, uh, try to find ways in there. There's massive exploration. Some of it will lead to mines. Some of it won't. So you have the BC government and its industry. Uh, you have the Canadian federal government. And a problem here is that the Canadian federal government defers mostly to BC on mining, 
and on enforcement of a lot of issues. They really have not stepped in strongly. So the province has been able to get away with a, a fair amount of stuff that here in the U.S., um, you would have more interaction between the feds and the states, and you would have a set of you know different laws taking effect here. But the province really can kind of be off on its own here. Um, you have a number of First Nations, which is what the uh, the Native tribes would be called on the BC side. Um, uh, some are very large and powerful. Some are smaller. And one thing I can tell you that they and the Alaska tribes cannot stand is being called a stakeholder. You know, I remember one uh, uh, tribal hmm. official here in Juneau that stood up in a meeting and said, you know, I'm not a stakeholder. And he gave this impassioned speech about, um, you know, I, I live here. This is my land. My family's lived here for thousands of years. We're not just a stakeholder. Um, and I can't remember the rest of the speech, but it really had an effect on folks. So you have a number of uh, First Nations over on the mm. BC side um, who um, uh, it's still kind of like the U.S. In some places they own land, in some places they don't. There are some treaties. There are some places where there aren't. It's still a bit of a mixed bag. But the, the First Nations over there have been very aggressive in fighting for their rights. And they've said, we'll accept mining, but it's on our terms. Uh, you have to come to us first. You can't just go mess around the territory and then decide you want to build a mine. We need free and prior informed consent. Um, we need to have these bonding issues fixed. So if there are problems, uh, there's a resource that can be fixed or that can be brought to bear uh, to pay for any kind of cleanup. Um, you have a number of uh, native tribes on the Alaska side, and they're starting to interact quite aggressively as well with the BC tribes. Because historically, they, they traveled up and down the river, they traded, there's family on both sides. You know, that, that border there is not really a border for the tribes and the First Nations. And to them, certainly water quality and fish is important, uh, game, um, and essentially the overall integrity of the landscape. Um, you have a number of fishermen. Um, there are There's more commercial fishing on the Alaska side than the BC side. There's a lot of sport fishing by individuals, but also by lodges and charters. Um, uh, uh, let's see, you have a lot of outfitting and guiding for uh, everything from bear viewing to hunting to bird watching. You have this tourism industry that brings both a massive and very small cruise ships to the region. Um, we have processors up and down the coast here who process salmon and sell it across the planet. I mean, there's an incredibly diverse set of, of, of groups and individuals and interests um, involved here. And then you have several level, levels of government, local, state, federal, and provincial. Uh, it's a hugely con uh, uh, complex landscape. <laughs> um, and then you have the fish and the critters and uh, everything else that lives in the watershed. Right, who seem to be the, the last to be consulted always on these types <laughs> of things because um, they don't really have a voice, which is why we're talking right now. Absolutely. Um, so – that's a fantastic outline of um, who's involved here and, and duly noted. Thank you. That's a really wonderful um, way of expressing what the uh, First Nations folks mentioned about um, not being just a stakeholder. I, that's incredibly correct. <laughs> you know, thousands of years. Um, okay. So given all of these interests in this region, how, how, are you squaring this up with Tulsa Chief right now? Where are, where do we stand? What what is happening on the ground right now, this moment, 
And then what needs to happen next? Uh, specific to Tulsa Chief, what's happening on the ground is um, the BC government has hired some contractors to go in and characterize the site. Um, how much water is moving? Where? Where do you need to plug it up? Um, how stable are the underground workings of the mine? Can we send people in there? Um, what do we need to do to stabilize that? Um, they had to look at where the uh, river was eating away at the bank and at um, the side of the airstrip. They're going to do a LIDAR study, um, uh, which is kind of an overflight, again, to get an idea of the geography of the terrain. Um, the big thing here is this is this entire transboundary region is massively wet, snow and rain. It's got just water moving everywhere. And that's one of the biggest challenges. If we were if we were talking about a mine here in the Arizona desert or somewhere near Las Vegas in Nevada, this would be a totally different issue. But you know we're in a very wet issue with salmon and a ton of people who depend on the uh, um, on the fish here. Um, so they it's taken them a while really to figure out where's this water come from, where's it going, how can we keep it out of the mine, um, how do we need to treat it before it's dumped back into the river. So they're really at the study stage. We might not see actual cleanup, you know, a reduction in the acid mine drainage until 2023. And that's if we stay on track now and we don't have any more complications from COVID and we don't have any more complications from this ridiculous bankruptcy process. Um, but it's dependent on Alaska and Alaskans and, our, and even our federal leaders here to keep the pressure on BC. And we've tried to tell them this is the biggest issue in the transboundary. Um, it's been going on probably the longest, but also it's one of the relatively easiest to deal with. It is a relatively small mine. Uh, the acid mine drainage problem is not like something you would get from pebble orders of magnitude bigger. Um, and if we can't fix this, how are we going to fix anything else? So this is the precedent setter here with Tulsaqua, and it's going to tell us whether we have a, a partner we can trust on a BC side or not. So we'll see a couple more years of study. Um, uh, we'll hopefully see the commitment to clean up by 2023. The other big thing they're going to have to do is create the bankroll. BC is going to have to get this money either from the taxpayer or from the responsible companies who tried to develop the mine and went bankrupt and left. So that's a choice as well. Are we going to stick the public with this or are we going to stick the people who actually made the mess uh, and make them pay for what they left festering out there? Um and again, that'll be a test case for BC of, all right, BC continues to say that we have a polluter pay uh, principle. Well, not here. And if the polluter doesn't have any money, how are you going to make them pay? Um, so this is a real test case of the polluter pays issue. And it's it's been a mixed bag so far. Um, so the, the task for us, the task for Alaskans, the task for Senator Sullivan and Murkowski is to keep the pressure on BC and Canada and say Alaska is watching. We're expecting you to follow through on your commitments, and we're going to follow through here. And if we see that the job isn't done right on Tulsaqua, you're probably going to see more aggressive moves against some of the other mining proposals, and you'll probably see more skepticism from some of the mining proponents on the Alaska side. There are certainly a lot of people on the Alaska side who support more mining in BC because they're either in the industry or they think they can um, you know, somehow capitalize on that with transportation uh, materials, things like that. Um, but if the job can't be done right, if it's putting Alaskans out of work, if it's taking food off our table, um, you're not going to see a lot of support from Alaska for that. So right now, it's you know, I guess if you go back five or six years ago, it was kind of hard to get up in the morning and think that 
oh man, banging our head against the wall again um, with the Canadians without much help. Um, now though, I mean, there is, there is hope. The Tosco chief is on the path to, uh, to clean up. Um, the BC government, I mean, one of their staffers told us that every time they hear the word Tosco chief, it's like a scab being torn off an open wound. And that didn't make them happy, but it sure made me happy. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, we want them to, to <laughs> um, know that we're watching here. So there is this, you know, this took 20 years with Tosco chief, but I think we are on the right path now to get this thing cleaned up and actually prevent mining in the Tulsaqua Taku watershed, or, or I mean, in the where the area where the Taku and the Tulsaqua come together, the confluence area, very sensitive area, massive wetlands. Uh, if you prevent a road in a mine in that area, you'll essentially protect that. Um, once the road goes in, I think we'd be done. But right now, I think we're on the long-term path to protect that that entire region. And that's also bleeding over in other areas of the Taku where they think, wait a minute, we don't want this here or we don't want this here. So there is, once we saw BC finally realize that uh, this wasn't the way to go, you know, we wake up in the morning with a bit of different hop in your step. Um, and even Senator Dan Sullivan here, you know, very, very conservative senator, very pro-mining, um, has gone to the Canadian federal government several times and said, you got to clean this up. This is shocking. This is appalling. Um uh, you know, most Alaskans who depend on these rivers see that you can't have this kind of mining and salmon. So there is this hope, and there's also the value in persistence. You know, this wasn't going to be something we were going to fix in a couple mm -hmm. years. Tulsa Chief took 20 years. Um, but we now have the transboundary area, the word transboundary, is now in common usage. Alaskans now know what's happening in Montana. Montanans have told us in Alaska, Here's what we went through. You don't want to go do this. Or here's what the BC government will do. And so expect this. And so now we're learning the lessons across the entire border from the lower 48 to here of how, um, uh, how you can come together across the border to protect it, how you deal with the industry and how the industry and government behaves. So you have a much more educated public and activist base. And it also shows that these problems are not, in one sense, they are local but they also are across the entire border, um, which makes them a national issue. You know, we have national resources at risk here, our salmon. That's a national resource. That's not just for Alaska. Um, every once in a while, my parents in Pittsburgh get fresh Alaska salmon. It costs an arm and a leg. It's hard to get. Um, and every once in a while, I send them some myself. <laughs> so um, there is this kind of the value of persistence. There is some hope here. And also just you see people coming together across the border for really what's a couple thousand miles of border. And I, th I think that's put the entire issue on the map. Instead of it being a few dozen little local fights here and there, this is now a concerted battle across the border with the U.S. and Canada, and it's elevated all the issues. And I think that's been very valuable. So uh, you've done a great job of breaking this down. And um, I think... Um, it's you're painting a, a very clear picture here of what's going on in the moment and the fact that this this is a precedent setting moment um, and that uh, this is a, a moment to take action. Now, according to your T-shirt and according to you know the network I'm involved in of of people uh, with the same name of Salmon Nation, um, we don't really think about things in terms of the the geography and the, the border between countries, because as you pointed out, salmon don't really think of things that way. 
but those things do exist in in our modern um, architecture of society. And so, for our listeners, can you kind of explain to all of us like what what can be done here? Where's the carrot? Where's the stick? Based on our elected officials and based on our our, our own individual actions, our, a lot of times we talk about these things and we feel very helpless and powerless uh, to to be an instrument of change and to support the things that need to be supported. What? Where's the carrot? Where's the stick? What What can we do to really uh, use our voices and through our elected officials as well? Okay. Yeah, there's a couple mechanisms that can be utilized here, and then there's a variety of ways folks can get involved. Um, one of the um, international mechanisms that exist is something called the IJC, the International Joint Commission. And that's an international Canadian-U.S. body set up by the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909. And that's a long, convoluted treaty, but essentially it says you can't pollute the waters flowing between the two countries. Um, you know, it kind of mm. does then imply that you can do whatever the hell you want in your own country, but um, for instance, in the Taku, you can't pollute the river to where it impacts Alaskans, either from water quality or loss of salmon or things like that. And the IJC is the body that's created to kind of broker and discuss this. The fundamental problem is both countries have to agree to bring the IJC in. And the Canadians don't want to do that because the IJC in the 60s um, uh, opposed some uh, coal mines in BC, and those coal mines were never uh, never built. Um, it put the industry on its heels, and they don't want to see that happen in the transboundary um, from an industry perspective. So the IJC is this threat, this kind of stick out there, but it's tough to implement. Um, we, we continue to push for that. We want the IJC involved because then they bring both parties together with resources. And you can essentially create some kind of managed plan for the region instead of having these constant fights uh, over what should be done here, what should be done here. We've got to create some kind of more certainty. Um, there's a big effort in BC to reform the mines um, that's led by a number of BC groups and some of the First Nations uh, to reform the uh, mining regulations, to fix the bonding issue to try to address this bankruptcy issue. So that would make the industry behave better. Um, there were some of the First Nations who were saying, again, we we can take mining on certain terms, but on our terms and not here, here, and here. Um, you know, for instance, this issue is too vital and too sensitive. And I think those kind of, if you call them protected areas or wilderness, whatever, that again is a bit of a, a stick of um, we're gonna continue to push for these. If you can't do the job right, we're going to continue to push to make these areas just off limits. And there are certainly some places where you just shouldn't have mining. It's just not, uh, it's just not compatible with the, the, the critters, the fish, the sensitivity of the ecosystem, and all the existing uses. Um, so we have the IJC. We have a fight on regulatory reform, supporting the First Nations in their fights. The other thing is to come together across the border. Um, Alaskans and people in B.C., Montanans and people in B.C., um, all saying... We need to protect this region. We need to protect these livelihoods. Um, we need to have a better balance between industry and fish. Um, there are literally dozens of environmental groups involved in this. There are uh, fishing uh, organizations, uh, sport fishing groups like Trout Unlimited. Um, so I think for the average person, the thing to do is probably to get in touch with one of the groups. I'd say, give me a call or an email. We need all kind of help, everything from letters written to the paper, letters written to our senators, 
we need people who will put flags on their boats, you know, promoting wild salmon. And we also, you know, one way to save wild salmon is ironically eat them. Um, it promotes the value of that fish, mm-hmm. the healthy food. It's in general better in a number of areas than farmed fish. Um, uh, uh, but really I think the thing is to try to get involved in, if there's a local battle, you know, down in Seattle, you have, uh, the company that built a mine up in the Stikine here wanting to put a mine in the, uh, in the donut hole on the BC side in the upper Skagit watershed in Montana, you have the, uh, right. uh upriver coal mines all along the coast here. We have different mines, but the reason my group came together was really to empower people and bring them to this area show them that the border is not a block to fixing things um, and bring them into an international issue, which really, you know, at first glance looks just way too complex and not something your average person would want to get into. But really, this is raising the voice of why we need salmon, why these areas are important to fish, um, and why we need reforms out of the uh, out of the mining industry. So it's really people power here. And whether you're a lawyer and can help with the IJC, whether you're a writer and can get an article, all that is valuable. If you know the prime minister of BC and go to the same cocktail parties, great. We'd love for you to go talk to him. Um, so there's a host of uh, things that people can do to help, even if you're not right here in Juneau. You know, this is really, this is a national Canadian um, U.S. issue. And I think there's room and need for uh all folks to get involved. My parents continue to write letters um, about Pebble and Tulsa Chief, uh, and they're in their 80s back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Good for them. Try to get in touch with us. Either um, uh, you know our website www.riverswithoutborders.org. The email is uh, zimmer at riverswithoutborders.org. So please uh, reach out. We can use uh, any help you've got. You've got expertise, time, political power, money. Um, it takes everything. Very thorough, my friend. You are really on it. Um, yeah, I look, the, we, uh, you know, started Ava's Wild, uh, the kind of umbrella of this show as an impact brand for that very reason to raise awareness and to uh, raise awareness about the idea of eating wild salmon to, to save them. You know, if you demand them on your plate, then you can't have deleterious projects that would keep them from coming back to your plate. So I want to step out way out here again into outer space, and then we'll, we'll kind of zoom in uh, to wrap this thing up. But when we're weighing competing interests and competing industries, who should get the final say about what goes in where and why? It seems rather unclear that, you know, obviously, if you pay attention, it's follow the money. And that seems to always have the most influence. Doesn't mean that's right, but it seems to be the way of the world. What, though, in your mind, should weigh the heaviest when we're deciding about these complex situations? Yeah, it's hard to say that any one interest group, well, I mean, I'd love for me to be the you know arbiter here and have the final say, but I don't think that's practical. Um, there's probably not one group or constituency really to have the final say, given the extremely wide uses in this watershed. I mean, you almost need something like the IJC to come in and, and create the balance between all the, all the different users. Um, but if you're looking at not who has the final say, but what say are the final criteria here, I think you got to look at one 
the the um, uh, the fact that uh, tribes and First Nations have been on this landscape for thousands of years. They have a tremendous mm-hmm. role to play here. Um, in BC, they still it's still not required that mining companies or the government consult with them formally over development. We need a process of formal consultation, and that just doesn't mean send a letter. That means you sit down, you talk, you hash stuff out. Um, and sometimes at it, it, some places, there may be places where the First Nations and tribes should have a veto of, you know, this is just the wrong thing in the wrong place. Um, uh, but I think the, the kind of – the way I would view this of what are the, the criteria is really um, what protects the existing uses, especially the, the tribes and First Nations and their long history, but what maintains the overall integrity of the landscape. It doesn't need to basically be a complete wilderness top to bottom, but it's got to function. Um, uh, roads tend to break up uh, and fragment watersheds. Bears don't like that. Use of explosives terrifies goats, especially during their uh, uh, lambing seasons. Um, you know, there are very specific things like that that need to be addressed. But I think you've got to take this more wholesale view of we need to protect the integrity and the productivity of these watersheds. And that's clean water, that's salmon, that's uh, uh, deer, goats, and sheep for, for hunting. Um, uh, um, uh, it's keeping it intact to where it's not fragmented by dozens and dozens of roads where you have logging trucks and Winnebago's and stuff like that uh, through there. Um, and there are certainly ways that industrial development can function with that. We're not saying this is an industrial free zone from Haines to Montana, but the industry's got to change the way it works. It's got to become more responsive. Again, you need prior and informed consent with the tribes, meaning a mining industry has to come to the tribe or First Nation up front and essentially get permission, not go explore around in the watershed for a couple years and then go talk. Uh, we need better bonding. Um, so really, again, the, we need to look at development um, through the lens of what maintains the productivity, the integrity, and the existing uses here. Um, there is a ton of money made, you know, out of out of fishing and tourism here, and the other um, activities on the land that aren't uh, mining. Um, that needs to be maintained. So it's going to it's a balancing act, and it's going to be a difficult one. But I think at the end of the day, fish and clean water trump everything else, um, and that's how we got to look at this. You know, the fish, the fish will come back for in perpetuity as long as they've got the habitat. The minerals, once they're out of the ground, that's done. Also, the minerals will be in the ground forever. If we mine everything else in a thousand years and need to come back to the Tulsa Chief, well, we'll have that discussion then. But we sure as hell don't need the minor amount of gold and copper that would come out of the Tulsa Chief here. Um, so some of this is a, a change in mentality for folks. Um, some of it is a bit expanding the worldview from you know, maybe little Juno here to the entire border. Um, but again, I think it's, I think it's fish. If you had to nail it down to one thing, it's fish. And that's how we need to look at almost every activity in the transboundary here. Um, and again, the, the, the vast number of different constituencies here does make that difficult, but there are ways to get those folks to the table and there are different ways to do things. And we are seeing some of that in the way BC is dealing with the first nations. Um, you know, we're certainly seeing more attention to clean water, and we're seeing people more educated about um, the effects of development in the uh, in regions like this. So um, maybe I'll just leave it at that, uh, and again, just say it's all it's all about fish. <laughs>
Well, I'm not going to argue with you. Um, obviously, uh, you know, if you follow any of the stuff that I'm I'm up to, you know that I'm salmon obsessed, and and uh, we're, we find complete agreement there. I also love this um, necessary consultation with First Nations, and I I feel that that is on the way to happening more holistically on multiple levels as far as First Nations input and and frankly management of areas, people that know it best, that have been here, that have traditional wisdom that goes back millennia. I mean, it's beyond being just, it's common sense. <laughs> I mean, the, they know it better than anybody else. And, and you know, the rest of us are trying to be the best stewards we can, but these are folks that have it in their, in their DNA. So that's, that is, I think, a prerequisite as well. Coming back to the idea of a carrot and a stick, though, too, and this moment we find ourselves in, it'll be very interesting to watch how this unfolds as to who is left with the bill for the inevitable cleanup when this happens. You know, if you're a kid and you're out, I had a buddy growing up, he'd go out and light fires in his backyard. And, you know, if, if that kid's getting a lollipop every time he lights a fire, you're, he's not going to stop doing this and, and eventually he's going to burn the house down. You know, the people that take the risk have a meaning. The mining companies have massive incentive to do this because ultimately they typically make a ton of money. And so, you know, the people though the, that are passively taking the absorbing the risk are are living downriver. And there's not a whole lot out of it for them if you know they they strike it big or they don't strike it big. So to me, it makes more than enough sense that the people that stood to gain the most out of this at the very beginning of this operation, i.e., the mining companies, Tech Cominco, they ought to stand by it. They ought to be the ones who ought to be on the hook. And it, if it doesn't work out and it's a, a nasty cleanup process. Well, maybe they'll think about it That's the another time. That, yeah. So uh, it's going to be super interesting to see how this plays out. And you know, from from this perspective here, I, I certainly think that the people that stand uh, to gain the most ought to be responsible for it. And and uh, frankly, you know, the people that have been there for thousands of years, like you say, you know, ought to have the most to say about evaluating whether this thing should go in in the first place. Well, it's actually an interesting point I forgot about, the the risk-benefit. I mean, us here in Alaska, we bear all the risk, and we get hardly any benefits from the, the BC mines. And mm -hmm. the thing I did forget to mention is is the enforcement. We've got to see better enforcement of existing and future laws from BC. And what we really have never seen is, you know, people treat corporations like they're some entity that's not people. Um, you know, BC has fined the corporations – they hit Tecumseh with a sixty million dollar fine a couple weeks ago, but you're looking at a fifteen billion dollar company. Does that impact them? But we need to mm -hmm. the fines and the enforcement, and we need to see the officers of the company fined. We need to see them go to jail, not treating the corporation as some faceless beast that there's no people there. If we start putting corporate officers in jail or hit them with the fines, I think we'll see a change in behavior. But there has not been the, the the real willingness to go do that yet. That will bring it home if we see some of these guys in an orange jumpsuit and see them have to write checks. Because, for instance, the officers of the two companies that went bankrupt in the in the Taku with Tosco Chief, 
they've never paid a dime. Um, there's never been any threat about going after them. And clearly under the law, you could do it. Um, so the, the enforcement issue is here. It's something we need to see much better. And that may be one of the more effective sticks, but that requires government to act. It's exactly where I was going with that. I think that's brilliant. And yeah, because, you know, look, if, if there's no repercussions, yes. you're just going to keep doing the same thing. And frankly, we, we don't have that luxury anymore. Like we talk about in, in, uh, my film, the wild, you know, look with places like Southeast and Bristol Bay, you've reached the end of the line here. Yeah. Um, we just don't have, uh, we don't have the luxury of playing around with these fires anymore. All right. So, um, what I'm seeing here is that, uh, you know, time and again, a mine goes in, company goes bankrupt, bankrupt. Nobody wants to pay for the cleanup. Rinse, repeat. <laughs> you, you've said this is a small project uh, in the grand scheme of things, um, and it takes all of this headache and all of the, yes. the these incredibly uh, disparate moving pieces to try to get it shut down and taken care of in perpetuity. So. How would something like the proposed pebble mine in Bristol Bay compare to something like uh, the Tulsco Chief in terms of size, scope, potential destruction to the bioregion and its salmon runs, and the massive pain in the ass if, God forbid, it needed cleanup from a disaster and perpetual remediation? Well, the, the Tulsco Chief was a mine that was going to mine about 2,000 tons of ore a day. Um, I've seen a couple uh, proposals for pebble but I think we're talking a couple orders of magnitude. I know we're talking 50, 100,000 tons a day, uh, a footprint of the, mine it's, of the mine itself and all of its infrastructure. I mean, Tulsco Chief is a fairly small footprint, the mine itself, the processing center, uh, diesel power plant. Um, but Pebble would have, I mean, it, the footprint would be massive. It would have a port, a huge road, a power plant. And then you finally get to the mine, which itself would be massive. And... Um, Tulsco Chief is an underground mine, uh, which is one thing, but some of these big open pits can create issues of, well, look at the Butte pit in Montana. They closed that thing down decades ago. It's full of poisonous water. I think if a bird lands on it, it probably has a couple minutes to live. Um, and that thing just sits there. Um, so the footprint is massive. The amount of tailings produced from something like Pebble, again, be orders of magnitude more that would have to be managed. So it's, the physical footprint, um, the uh, 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 just the absolute amount of, of minerals, and the massive amount of water that's going to be moving around in there. So, you know, as you said, yeah, this is a little one, but look at all the trouble it's taken to deal with. I mean, I, I can't imagine dealing with a problem that you would see at a mine like KSM proposed in a unique drainage, which is pebble scale. You know, the Mount Holly mine, which was in uh, southern BC. Um, it's tailing dam blew out. And the, the one kind of a saving grace there is that mine was not acid generating. It did not have acidic tailings. It wasn't full of the heavy metals like the Tulsa Chief or Pebble would be. So when the Mount Polly dam let go, you had, I mean, a massive sediment bomb going downstream, destroying the water, um, uh, ending up in Quinnell Lake where all that stuff's just sitting on the bottom now. And the company now has permission from BC to continue di discharging other water into there. Um, uh, so if Mount Polly was an acidic mine, you would see that water be toxic. You would see that lake be dead. 
Um, so for the grace of God, Mount Polly was not an acidic mine. Look how big that problem was. Tulsqua, relatively mm. small, but 20 years to clean up. In total, it's probably going to take $100 million to clean it up and monitor the cleanup over the long term. Um, and it's given the industry a tremendous black eye. And it's given people like me the motivation, the impetus to get up in the morning and make sure that we uh, don't have this kind of stuff anymore. Um, uh, so when you look at Tulsa Chief, it really has lessons for all these other battles, whether they're big or small mines. But again, it's such a small mine. Um, if you have a tailings blowout at KSM or at Pebble, or you have a big open pit that fills up and is full of toxic water, uh, I don't even think the bonding that the mines are required to put up front would cover that. And we'd be going to the, to the taxpayer again. So I think, you know, you know Tosco Chief is the, is the lesson here, and this should inform any other decisions we make about this kind of mining. Rinse, repeat. Um, <laughs> so, Chris, you've been at this a long time, and you're, obviously your heart is so passionate and involved in this. And you also know a tremendous amount of people and a, a tremendous, tremendous amount about this this issue. And you're also a pragmatist. It seems to me you're very, you know, level-headed on this stuff. So given all this time you've devoted all of your life that you've devoted to this, if you had your druthers and you could wave a magic wand, what would the (laughs) harmony look like in, in this region of Southeast of Alaska and, and BC? What, what does that look like to you? I mean, if you could just paint us a picture of, um, if things could be balanced in a way that made sense for most people, what would that look like to you? I think to take that holistic, first the holistic view of what whatever we do, we need to maintain the integrity and the productivity of the watersheds and maintain those existing lifestyles, those cultures, those livelihoods, those jobs um, that right now uh, are dependent on these watersheds. And as long as the water stays clean, the fish keep coming back, those jobs will, will be there. So one is kind of that, and that requires certainly an attitude change on some folks. So it's, it's the recognition that, you know, wilderness has value. We keep hearing, oh, all you crazy greenies, you just want to put a fence up around everything and keep everybody out. Why would I want to do that? I hunt, I fish, uh, my neighbors and friends make money off tourism, off guiding, off hunting and fishing. Um, you know, this isn't some purist wilderness thing to where we just want to take the humans off the landscape. You can't do that. Um, we've been here for thousands of years, and we're going to be here for a lot longer. But we can behave a lot better here, I think. So it's that holistic view that um, humans will be here. We do impact the landscape. Um, in doing that, we do have to continue to try to keep in mind the, the, the uh, integrity and productivity of the watershed and the people that are already here. Um but also, I'm also wondering, we had a, I had a mining exec tell us uh, last year that if you keep wanting to have a, a new smart from every year, you're going to need to let us mine more. And first of all, I told him, well, I have a flip phone and I've had that same flip phone for five years. Uh, <laughs> I don't Fantastic. He understood. But, you know, do, do we need a new flip phone every year? Some of this is going to have to be the way, you know, people behave, the resources we use, um, and what we demand in the marketplace. Um, electric cars are going to need more metals, but there's certainly good and bad ways to do that. So some of this is the, the consumer and the average public saying, yeah, I do want some of these benefits, but I don't want them at the cost of this, and we need to change the way we, we operate here. 
Some of it, again, is the companies. I mean, look at uh, Google. The Google server farms, as I understand it, are sucking huge amount of juice out of the grid in Washington. That's, uh, you know, and I think a bunch of that power comes from the dams. So, you know, Google, you could say there may be that they're contributing to the problems that come from the dams um, uh, by using that much power there and essentially propping up, you know, the whole uh, electric system there. So I don't know if there's just one thing I could do and wave the magic wand, but it's it's really kind of, I think, an, an attitude change, a realization of the landscape, um, but also the understanding that, you know, you can have all these different things work together if it's done right. I mean, that doesn't mean you have Pebble. That doesn't mean you have KSM. But, you know, you can have some industrial development in these areas, but there are some areas that just should be off limits to industrial development. And that doesn't mean that then those areas are now useless to the human race. There's still a variety of people that... Uh, make their livelihood and living off there um, and do it in a way that they, they want to do, you know, they don't, they don't want to be a stockbroker in New York city. <laughs> uh. Well, I think that's brilliant, man. And um, I think uh, we really need to get to the most imperative question of the day here, which is uh, how are your Pittsburgh penguins doing? <laughs> and, and, and do you feel the fear of the Seattle Kraken. <laughs> well, uh, the Penguins lost yesterday. Um, I don't know what the Capitals did, but the Penguins and the Capitals are trading first place. Uh, and the Penguins, despite a massive amount of injuries, have stepped up. It's been great watching that team step up, watching the coach get everybody together. And it's just a, a great sport. Um, the only fear I have about the Kraken is through the expansion draft, they'll steal some of the Penguins. But you're not getting Sidney Crosby. We're protecting him. He's staying in Pittsburgh. <laughs> in Pittsburgh. But, I mean, I, I think it's great to see hockey really so prominent now in the U.S. It's a great sport. Um, I personally like it better than, than baseball and football. Um, it has this amazing fan base. And it looks like uh, Seattle is just uh, head over heels uh, getting ready for next year. Yeah, people are crazed already. And, you know, coming from a place here that uh, lost a beloved franchise uh, in our Seattle Supersonics, trust me, I understand that uh, suspicion and that malaise in in thinking about uh, getting your your favorite players carted off. All right. So uh, we're going to jump into the, the, the quick speed round, three questions. Uh-oh. Everybody gets it. Yep. And, uh, and, and, uh, it's just use your imagination here. So, okay. okay your, your, your house is on fire, uh, or let's say it's in the, the path of a flooding river, perhaps in your case. <laughs> so of course you get your loved ones out and your, your, your pets out first, but in addition to them, what's the one physical thing that you take with you? If you can only take one thing, you mean like one thing, like one fishing rod or one picture or yep. one. Yep. Yep. You got to go. Wow. Okay. So we get Katie and the dog out. Um, I might grab my, this is going to sound very weird, but I might grab my 1911, which is a 45 caliber pistol. That's been my favorite thing for years. It's a kind of an heirloom. Um, and I might just grab that cause that's right here and easy to grab the fishing rods. There's 20 of them in the basement. I don't know which one I'd get. So I don't know that I've, I've got it right here on the desk. So I'd probably grab that. Um, uh, but other than that, to just have one thing, either that or I'd grab the uh, the uh, envelope on the desk here that has all my mom's letters. <laughs> there you go. I'd grab that because wow. I can see that right here. And she sends me letters. She sent me my baby shoes. She sent me shirts I wore when I was in fifth grade. 
I mean, it's like she sent me my, this little thing about my life in an envelope in a box. So I, maybe I, I should say I'd grab that. <laughs> wow, that's treasure. Yeah, I, my answer would be uh, the box full of journals and and letters as well. So, so okay, that's that's beautiful. But you know, the nineteen. 19- 11 too. All right. So let's now let's call it your, uh, your, like your spiritual house. Your, what are the two most important characteristics about you that you would take if you can only take two? The things that make you, you. Oh boy. I think it's the, 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 this, uh, fascination with water and fish. Um, not just the fascination with the broader landscape and outdoors, but this, this fascination with water and fish. Is that one or is that two? <laughs> I think that's one. Okay. So I got fascination with water and fish. Um, and then I say, I'd, I'd like to be able to take the uh, camaraderie and fun and friendship. My uh, two brothers and I have every year when we go off on our two to three week fishing trip. Um, one brother's in London. The other's at a tough job in Pittsburgh. This takes them totally out of that element, puts them in a, you know, somewhere out in a remote cabin. They get chased by bears. They get to eat fish. They fall in the water you know, get hooks stuck in them. Uh, but it's, it's that whole dynamic of not only me getting out there, but taking my brothers out of their kind of, uh, you know, day to day world and putting them into something that's much different and much more fun. And that they, they take back home with them and it allows them to get up every day and continue to, you know, keep the fight going back in Pittsburgh when they're 3000 miles away from salmon. <laughs> It's about the story, man. It's always about the story. (laughs) All right. Lastly, is there anything that you would leave in the fire to, to burn up, to be gone, to be rid of or purified? My laptop and cell phone, because I cannot stand (laughs) technology. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perfect. I'd probably grab my backup disc because it has a lot of fish pictures on it, but the laptop and the smart or the uh, laptop and the flip phone, uh, they'd be sitting on the desk while I'm running around here, digging up everything else. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave our uh, Gen Z audience with the two words, flip phone <laughs> to uh, ponder. <laughs> I can, and uh, what that is, I can go get it and show it to everybody. <laughs> God love you. Uh, yes. A simpler time. Well, Chris, what a, what a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your passion with us here and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue this conversation. And I was just going to say too, like, um, for all of these complex issues, we just got to keep telling the story. We got to keep getting these ideas and these voices out there. And, uh, your voice is a strong one. And I, I, I've just never heard a more clear elucidation about what's going on, thank you. uh, in this transboundary issue. So thank you very much for your time. Yep. And we will, we will see you later down the trail, but Lastly, uh, you mentioned is the uh, ways folks can l- check out the work that you're doing. Mm. Once, what, once again, what is that uh, URL for folks to go to and see what you're up to? Oh, yeah, and my email and phone is on there. It's www.riverswithoutborders.org. And there is no perfect borders. I constantly see people spell borders, B-O-A-R-D-E-R-S. That different border up here. Rivers without borders with no A. <laughs> Perfect. Well, appreciate you, sir. We'll uh, we'll let you go for now and uh, have a great weekend and so long. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, this was a pleasure. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love?
Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.